All right, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of these fine gentlemen will bring one to you. Uh, Fine in character, I'm not getting into anything else there. Um, As you probably, that joke went right over everybody's head, okay. Uh, As you guys probably already remember this, we're working our way through the entire New Testament in about five years by doing one chapter a week. Uh, It's a lot to cover, but it gives us a good overview and helps us see how the whole picture comes together. We're in the Gospel of Luke right now, getting introduced to the ministry of Jesus. And in today's passage, we're going to see a number of miracles. uh, And we're going to see how those miracles are used by God to highlight the ministry of Jesus, which was really... Uh, to call sinners to repentance. And so, you know, Jesus didn't come about just to heal people physically. Uh, He was here for the purpose of healing people spiritually. So we'll see how that all plays out in this passage. Uh, We're going to be able to deal with some of those difficult questions, I think, though. I think sometimes uh, when we see the miraculous things in Scripture, it makes us ask, why am I not seeing those things in my life? Uh, We'll get a look at a little bit of the motivation that God has uh, in doing the miraculous and see how that can kind of help us see better how that works in today's world as well. Well, verse 1 Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land, and he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that... He fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of the fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to him, Simon, do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So this is the story of the miraculous catch of fish, Uh, miraculous because uh, the God of the universe is directing these fish into the nets of the fishermen. Uh, But the story kind of lays out like this. Jesus was doing what he had been doing up to this point. Uh, He had been teaching people and he had become so popular in part because of his teaching, but also in part because of the miraculous things that he was doing, that the crowds were just pressing closer and closer to him. And the people that were in the back would press even further because they wanted to get closer to him. And people wanted to touch him in hopes that they could get healed. And if you can imagine that, I mean, for me as an introvert, it actually sounds quite like a nightmare. Like I have bad dreams about this type of stuff, like people just surrounding me and touching me and all this kind of stuff. But this was kind of Jesus' life. And if you you can imagine trying to teach a crowd of people who surrounded you like that and crushing in against you, I don't know, Jesus spoke with his hands like I do, but could you imagine? He's trying to tell the world he's the Savior, and he like whacks, hits somebody in the eye, and he goes like, ah, where'd you get the black guy? Jesus hit me. You know, it's just terrible for your testimony, right? So Jesus comes up with this plan. What if I just get into the boat? 
a little bit of separation. I like to think of this as my boat, by the way, just a little bit of separation so that you guys don't press in against me as I'm trying to teach, right? But just a little bit of separation so that he can more easily, effectively teach the crowds. And that's actually what he's going to do. And of course, anytime Jesus taught, people were amazed by the things that he was saying. But the, the thing that happens is after he gets done speaking, he asks Simon to go fishing again. Now, Simon had a little bit of an understanding of who Jesus was already. We see in the Gospel of John that he had already been introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew. Andrew was convinced that Jesus was the promised Savior, the Messiah that the nation of Israel had been waiting for. Uh, possibly Simon believed this already, at least at some level. Uh, he certainly was impressed and had heard some of the teachings of Jesus and clearly was there on this particular day. But when Jesus asked him to like go out and go fishing again, Simon's a little bit put off by this because he's been fishing all night long and caught nothing. And he's been doing this for a while. This is his job. He, he kind of knows fishing. And so he's thinking to himself, this is kind of a waste of time. I'm exhausted. I don't really want to do this. However, Jesus asked me. So Matt, uh, Simon, uh, a little bit of complaining. We used to call this uh, slow obedience with our kids, which is really close to disobedience, so we would punish them the same. But uh, slow obedience, you know, is kind of like, I'm doing this under protest. And he says that. He literally says, Master. We worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the net. I mean, his expectation level is pretty much zero at this point. He's kind of placating Jesus. So they get in the boats, they go out, they cast their nets, and they caught so many fish in their net that the nets began to break. So if you could imagine the way they just had these giant nets, they would just throw them out into the water. And as they lift them up, they're hoping that they would pull fish in with it. And they would try to drag all that back into their boat. Well, uh, they have so many fish that it's breaking their nets. And so they signal over to their partners. That's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder. Uh, they call their partners over to the boat to come and help them. Uh, and there's so much fish that it fills both boats so far that they're about to sink. This is a miraculous catch, not just because there's so much, but think of it this way. First, God says to the fish, I need you to play hide and seek. And so all night long, the fish are avoiding the nets. And then at the right time, God says, now everybody jump into the nets. Everybody get into the nets so that they become overflowing. I don't think this was just a situation where Jesus was just like, no, I'm pretty sure that's the, that's the spot where they're biting today. No, this was a miraculous thing that happened. And you can see that by Simon's response. Now think of this situation. The boat is full of fish, so full of fish that it's starting to sink. And right in the middle of that fish, he bows down at the feet of Jesus. And he says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In that moment, he recognized Jesus wasn't just powerful, but he had a holy powerfulness. He had the power of God. And in the face of that holiness, Simon recognized his own sinfulness. And he bows down to God. Uh, I've made this joke for years. It was not funny then. It's still not funny. But it's interesting to me anyway. Like, Jesus was the original Aquaman. 
Like he's talking to the fish. This is amazing. But this is what's amazing about it to me. That wasn't the limit of Jesus' power. See, Aquaman kind of coolly talks to fish. Not a lot of fish on dry land. Maybe he can get to something in your aquarium or something like that. But in general, that's the end of it. And this is kind of the way it's worked out throughout history in different civilizations. They kind of invent these gods and they can do specific things. The god of the fish, the god of the trees, the god of the sky, the god of love. But in Jesus Christ, we have the God of all gods, who is over all of creation. He's over everything. And he commands the fish to stay away from the net. He commands the fish to jump into the net. And Simon's response is the proper one when he sees the power of God, when he sees God in his midst. And that's just to recognize that he's So much more than I am. Well, Jesus is actually going to use this miracle as an opportunity now to expand his kingdom. And the way that he's going to do that, he's going to now enlist Simon and his brother Andrew. We learn in Matthew was there as well. And the the sons of Zebedee, James and John, to leave their job as fishermen and now take on a new career as evangelists, as fishers of men. And what's great about this is they respond immediately by following him. They immediately leave everything and they just follow him. But but really, it's not an odd response. Because he just did this amazing, miraculous thing that nobody else can do. It just makes sense in this circumstance that they would follow him. Well, the next miracle we're going to see Jesus, he's going to cure someone of leprosy. So verse 12, while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther. The large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. And Jesus would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. So the next miracle we're going to see Jesus do, he's going to cleanse a guy of leprosy. Uh, I don't know that leprosy is the way we always envision it. It's a bad deal. It's any type of infectious skin condition. That's the way it was handled biblically. We think of leprosy. We think of like you shake somebody's hand and his hand falls off. Maybe not have been that severe type of leprosy, but it was the type of leprosy where it was some sort of infectious disease. And so in the Old Testament law, there was these requirements that somebody who had leprosy was not welcome in the camp. In other words, they couldn't live among the rest of the people because that disease might spread. It was a way of quarantining them to keep everybody else healthy. So they would quarantine the sick to keep everybody else healthy. And they couldn't come in until there was no sign of this infectious disease on their skin again. And then they would go and they would go through this bathing ritual to show that they were ceremonially clean. But in the meantime, if they interacted with other people, they would actually walk around and somehow somehow signify whether it was the way they dressed or they would actually have to say, unclean, unclean, everywhere they went. It made them a complete uh, outcast from society. And again, as an introvert, sometimes that sounds interesting to me. 
but not at the level where I have no choice. Like, I want to make the decision when I want to interact with people and not interact with people. I don't want to be forced out of it. And imagine this guy, because he has an infectious skin disease, nobody touches this guy. We don't know how long he was in this circumstance, but this is his life. He was completely cut off from the rest of society. Nobody even, like, patted him on the back to say good job. Nobody would have hugged him. No handshakes. Everybody would have saw him and just backed up. That's what his life was. And so he sees Jesus now, and he has this amazing thing that he says as he asks Jesus to heal him. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What he recognizes is that this healing is according to God's will not ours. And of course, anytime we're sick, we desire to be healed, right? Like that's just a clear thing. That's something we desire. But it's always according to God's will that we would be healed. Well, there's a number of reasons we see why Jesus heals people. And, and I guess, you know, we'll go through the reasons why Jesus heals people. We'll see those in various passages. Um, but I think really the question people are asking is, why didn't Jesus heal? It's not nearly as impactful to the individual life, right? Like people are really concerned from that perspective. And so they'll actually put names to it. They'll put relationships to it. Why didn't Jesus heal me? Why didn't Jesus heal the person I love, my, my, my grandma, my child, my best friend? But if you can understand a little bit of why he healed, it maybe will help you kind of understand the circumstances why he doesn't heal. So let's just go through the list. Uh, first of all, the first thing we'll see, Jesus heals for compassion. Uh, not seen here in the Gospel of Luke, but Matthew, or Mark tells the same story. And in Mark 1.41, it says that Jesus just had a moment of compassion. He just saw this leprous person who was completely surrendered to the will of God. Lord, if you're willing, you can heal me. And it says Jesus has compassion on him in that moment, and he heals him. Another reason that we'll see actually comes up later in this same chapter, in verse 24 of chapter 5 here in Luke. Uh, we'll see one of the reasons that Jesus healed was to prove that he had the power to forgive sins. As we go through this chapter, Jesus is actually going to say the reason he came was to lead sinners to repentance. That's his purpose for being here, was to take people out of sin, to bring them into forgiveness. But people wouldn't really believe he could do that unless he did something else that was powerful. And so sometimes he did the miraculous. He healed people just so people knew he had the power to do those things. Um, another big reason that Jesus healed people, you'll see this in Matthew 8, Matthew 11, uh, basically just to show that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. They were waiting for the Messiah. One of the ways they knew that the Savior, the Messiah, was coming is that he would heal people. And so he's announcing who he is by healing people. It draws that, uh, people's attention to that, who he is. Uh, and then John adds this at the end of the book of John. He talks about all the miraculous things that Jesus did. And he said, all of these things were written down so that you would believe. The, the reason he demonstrates his power comes down to one of those reasons there. It's sometimes he's exhibiting his compassion. Sometimes he's for showing that he has the power to forgive sins. Sometimes he's fulfilling prophecy. Uh, ultimately, in John chapter 9, it says that he did this so that people would glorify God. You, you might remember the guy that was born blind, and the question was like, who sinned, his parents or him? Why is this guy blind? Jesus said, nobody sinned. He's blind so that... 
God would be glorified in him. And then he heals the blind guy. So there's these various reasons that God allows Jesus to work the miraculous, but all of them are intended to highlight who Jesus was so that he could draw the crowd so that they could hear the gospel. I think one of the things we lose that's lost in translation here is everybody that Jesus healed got sick again. These healings were, they're temporary or they ultimately died. Everybody. Jesus' goal wasn't to just heal us so we could suffer again later. Jesus' goal is to heal us from the eternal detriment of sin so that we would be forgiven of our sins, so that we could be healed with him eternally. We could be in his presence eternally in a place where there is no pain, where there is no sickness. He's leading us to something greater, to something better. And sometimes I think we kind of get our wires crossed in these things because we're so caught up in our own circumstances, in our own pain, that we forget that what he's promising us is something better than that. He tells um, Paul in 1 Corinthians, Paul three times asked for healing. And God's answer to him, my grace is sufficient for you. I've forgiven you of all of your sins. You're going to live with me eternally. That's pretty good stuff. He wanted people to know that they could be forgiven of their sins, cleansed of all unrighteousness, that they could be in the presence of a holy God so that we don't have to fear and bow down like Simon did when he realized who Jesus really was. This is the deal. This is the plan that Jesus had. Well, we're going to have this interesting thing that's going to happen. He's going to actually tell this guy that he just healed don't tell anyone that I just healed you. In fact, I just want you to go to the priests and go through the ceremonial cleansing that they do. I love this for a couple of reasons. One is I think there's this fine balance. Jesus didn't want to be known just as a physical healer. He wanted to bring people in by healing so that they could be taught. That was really the goal. That was really the thing that he was looking for. But if he becomes so popular from healing... And that's the only reason people show up and they won't even hear what he's saying anymore because they're just there for the miracles. He even has this problem later with the fish and the loaves and afterwards it'll say, you know, he was concerned that people were coming to him for bread, not for the teaching, not for the bread of life. And so there's this real concern that he has here. But the other thing he says here that's neat, uh, he tells this person to go to the priests in verse 14 as a testimony to them uh, so that they would know, that the priests would know that the Messiah has come. And so imagine this situation. Now the priests, their whole life have been doing these religious ceremonies to cleanse leprosy, but there's, there's no real power in them. There's no medicine there. And so they would go through the ceremonies and they would say, it appears God doesn't heal you. You have to go back outside the city and you have to wait. But this guy shows up and this is different. He was healed. Now, of course, Jesus didn't want everybody to know about this. He didn't want to make a big deal about it. That wasn't really his goal. Um, but how do you not, right? So this guy's going to go home, and he's going to see his family, and he's going to see his friends, and there's going to be like, something's different about you. Is your, is your skincare routine changed? What's going on? There's a glow about you, man. And, of course, he is going to eventually explain what happened to him, and it's just going to raise the number of people that want to be around Jesus. They want to hear. They want to see. And so they would gather all around him. 
these large crowds, and Jesus would have to sneak away into the wilderness just so he could have time to pray. I love this, that God the Son still continued to pray because ultimately under the leadership of God the Father, he's doing the things in obedience that he's asked to do. He's healing when God the Father wants to heal and he's not healing when God the Father doesn't want to. You'll see a bit of that here in this next healing. There's going to be another healing that we're going to see uh, in this particular one. It says in verse 17 that that the presence of the Lord, the power of the Lord was there for him to perform healings. It was just the right time when God wanted to bring healing. So verse 17 One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in to set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowds, they went up on the roof, let him down through the tiles with his stretcher, into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasoning, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what, had been ly- what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. When they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God, and they were all filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. So again, the circumstance now, there's large crowds going, but what's important in this is that the large crowds contained the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, all the people that were supposed to be in the know religiously. These were the ones that were supposed to be leading the people in all religious things. They're all drawn because they're hearing about the great things that Jesus is doing and the great teachings that he's doing. And so they're coming from all the cities of Jerusalem are all the cities of Israel. So we have Jesus is up at the north part of Israel. They're coming from all the cities around there. They're coming from in around Judea. It's like coming from different states to see him, even from the capital city, Jerusalem, where the temple is. All these religious leaders have gathered together to hear Jesus. There's so many people gathered together while he's in this house. People can't even get to him. So the teachers of the nation of Israel are listening to Jesus teach in this moment. Well, there's this group of friends, one of which happens to be paralyzed, and his buddies are just like, look, if we can get him to Jesus, I know he can heal him. So they pick him up on this stretcher, they carry him to the house where Jesus is teaching, but there's just so many people, they can't get this giant stretcher through that their friend is laying on. There's just no way that he's going to get to Jesus, so they come up with this plan. The houses in the Middle East at that time were built with flat roofs. They would use them uh, almost like decks or porches or patios, and particularly in the hotter months, they would even sleep on top of those things at night. So they had these stairways that would go up the sides of the building, so they work him up on top of the house. They start ripping the dude's roof apart hoping he has insurance or something, right? Because they're going to be responsible for this someday. They're ripping the guy's roof apart just so they can lower their friend through the roof so he can sit at the feet of Jesus because they know that Jesus will heal him. Jesus sees this and he recognizes in verse 20, it says, seeing 
their faith. So he's looking at the faith of all the friends, seeing their faith. He looks at this paralyzed guy and says to him, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now notice what he didn't say. Friend, take a lap. Just hop right up. He didn't heal him. He said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Because why did Jesus come? Verse 32, we'll see in a minute. He was seeking sinners to bring them to repentance. That was the purpose of his ministry. The miracles just reinforced his power to do these things. Reinforced the number of people who would want to hear from him. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they know what they believe to be true. And according to their understanding that nobody can forgive sins except God alone. And so if this guy is claiming to forgive sins, he's claiming to be God. That's blasphemy. They're done with this guy. They're just having this whole conversation in their head. And I can just imagine them kind of looking at each other like, yeah, it's time for us to go. Like, this ain't right. We're not doing this. I'm not listening to this guy anymore because he's proclaiming by his own words, by his own actions, that he can do things that only God can do, healing sins or forgiving sins. Jesus knows what's going on. He can read the room, right? He understands in verse 22 what they were reasoning in their hearts. And so he asks them this question, well, which is easier to say your sins have been forgiven or to say, get up and walk, but... So that you, speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he tells the paralytic guy, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. And immediately, he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Which, what else could you do in that moment except glorify God, right? His whole world just changed. But everybody who saw this, they were struck with astonishment. And they began glorifying God. Why? Look, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, I'll prove to you that I can do something that only God can do by demonstrating my power in this miraculous moment. So people began glorifying God. And Jesus is God. Of course, they're afraid to. Fear fills them. This is something they've never seen before. Everybody knew who Jesus was, including a guy by the name of Levi. We're going to meet Levi next here. You might know him as Matthew. Uh, In verse 27, after that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. Now, in a sense, I think in part, Jesus is actually goading the religious leaders. He's got all the religious leaders gathered together. His opportunity to help them understand who he is, because if they're really the religious leaders and they could really grasp this, they could help proclaim the truth. So what he's doing is he's trying to draw their attention to the things that he's doing. Uh, He does this by calling a young man by the name of Levi. That's his Hebrew name. Uh, In Greek, his name is Matthew. He calls him to follow after him, to leave what he's doing. The problem with Levi, uh, Levi is a Jewish tax collector, which means from the particular view of the Jews, he was a traitor because the Romans would hire people of the different uh, nationalities to raise the taxes. And the way that they would pay them, they would say, look, here's the amount of taxes you have to raise. Anything you can get from the people beyond that, you got to keep that for yourself. That's your money. 
And so these tax collectors would just kind of keep increasing the taxes, basically until people revolted, and then they would take it down a little bit. And all that extra money became theirs. So they were thought of as traitors against their own people. They were thought of as thieves for stealing from people. And here goes Jesus, and he's trying to decide who his band of merry men is that's going to help him proclaim the gospel to the world. And he picks a traitor, a thief, a tax collector. He picks Levi. Follow me. Levi leaves his tax collecting business. He follows Jesus. But what he also does is he asks all the other tax collectors to come to his house to meet this guy. So he throws a giant party, verse 29, which again, I think any of us would when he realized uh, that God cared for him as well. So verse 29, Levi gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. There was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So imagine this scene. Levi is so excited that Jesus, who happens to be the God of the universe, would pay attention to him, a lowly tax collector, a traitor, a thief of the people. The lowest of reputation, he calls all his other low-life friends together and says, you've got to meet this guy. So all the tax collectors get together, but the Pharisees are still in town, the teachers of the law, the religious people still in town watching all of this happen, and now they've got another beef with him. Not only is he claiming to do things that only God can do, but he's hanging out with people he ought not be hanging out with. So they start bugging Jesus' disciples. You know these guys we just met, Simon, Andrew, uh, 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 John, James, these, these guys just started following Jesus. What's his deal hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? And I'm sure they're like, dude, we don't know. We just got here. Like we were fishermen yesterday. I don't know what you're talking about. We're just trying to figure it out ourselves. He said, follow. We said, amen. We started following him. Jesus recognizes what's going on. He says, I'll answer that question for you. I didn't come for all you righteous people. I came for the sinners so I could lead them to repentance so that they could be made righteous in the eyes of God, so that they could meet the Holy One. See, Jesus was on a mission to save sinners. Now, we have to be cautious because some of us now as the righteous ones have the same tendency to kind of look at everybody else and be like, a bunch of sinners. Such were some of you until you met Jesus Christ. And you would think your response would be the same as Levi. Look what Jesus did for me. I got to go tell all my friends. They need to meet this guy who loves people who seem unlovable. That's the God we worship. We have to be careful that we don't become like these self-righteous people who think somehow God picked them because they were awesome. We have to be careful of that so that we can rightly represent to the world the things of God. And it really is this fine balance. You don't want to hang out with sinners so much that you're a sinner yourself, like that you just start like doing the things they do. But you have to have some interaction with the world around you or the world around you will never hear the good news that you heard. There's a love in that, to want them to hear. So here Jesus was, 
hanging out at the tax collectors and sinners party. But I don't think he was partying. He was fishing. He was fishing for men. The thing that I think is interesting in this is I actually think the men he was fishing for for were the religious leaders. He needed them to understand what was going on. And they just weren't getting it yet. It's going to be an ongoing problem. They have more questions for him, by the way. Verse 33, they said to him, the disciples of John fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees do the same. But yours eat and drink. They're just here partying, they say. Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. He was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into new wine, old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says, the old is good enough. Well, he wants to help them understand. They have this problem. They've been fasting, even John the Baptist's disciples, they've been fasting and calling out to God. And now here comes Jesus and all his buddies. They're not fasting. They're having a party. This just seems out of sorts for them. And that's just kind of, you know, I kind of imagine these super religious people uh, walking around. And and they really, they would have looked at the world like it was just full of landmines. Like all around them, sin's out to get them. So everywhere they go, they're on the lookout. They're waiting for something that's going to make them religiously unclean. They're so worried about being right and righteous in the sight of men all the time. And so I just envision them like walking around like very cautious just waiting for the next thing to come after them. And that just makes you grumpy, by the way. And so I just imagine these scowls on their face, just sad all the time and just like, oh, we're just, we need God's help in this. And so then they start fasting and now they're grumpy and they're hangry at the same time. It's just all kinds, it's just tough to be a Pharisee, right? It's tough to be self-righteous. And here comes Jesus and his guys and they're just having a jolly old time. They're just having a party. It just drives these guys crazy. This ain't right. Why is this a party? That doesn't make sense. Jesus says, because the one that the nation of Israel has been waiting for is here. And he uses this illustration. He talks about a bridegroom. Uh, and it's kind of the idea, it just kind of dips into, I don't have time to get into all the details, but it just dips into the history of how they did weddings. But there was kind of this waiting period where they were waiting for the groom to show up at the wedding. And everybody's like, is he coming or is this a runaway groom situation? They're just kind of waiting for that moment. But when the groom gets there, it's like, hooray, he's here. The party begins. Everybody starts to celebrate. The person they've been waiting for is here. It's a party. They celebrate. Jesus says, the nation of Israel has been waiting for me from the beginning. For thousands of years, you've been waiting for me. I'm here. Now's the time to celebrate. Jesus knows that he's going to leave. And he says, but... When I'm gone, my disciples will begin to fast again. That's us, by the way. We're those who are waiting for Jesus to come the second time. Whether you call it the rapture of the church or the second coming of Jesus Christ, however you look at it, we're waiting for Jesus to come again. We should be fasting. As we fast, what we would be saying to God when we fast, we're saying to God, I want Jesus to return more than I want a cheeseburger right now. It's a calling out to God. 
It's hungering for God more than you hunger for the things of this world. That's what should be happening now. But when Jesus was here on the earth, it's time to celebrate. And when he comes back again, you know what he does when we get to heaven? He throws a party. It's the wedding supper of the Lamb. We all gather together and we eat and we drink because Jesus is there again. We're looking forward to that party. We're looking forward to that reception in heaven. Well, he has a few more things to say to him, but I just before we get to those, I just kind of want to park on that for just a second and just say this. I recognize that there is this real tension between the world we're in and the world to come. We kind of have gotten comfortable here, and that's okay. He gave this world to us for us to enjoy, but I think we do have this struggle where we long for the things here more than we long for the things of heaven. We wouldn't say it that way because it makes us feel bad, it makes us sound bad, right? But I think it's true. It's within all of us. It's this little idea like sometimes I worry about the rapture happening and just seeing all these Christians like grabbing onto anything heavy like, I wasn't ready! I had more stuff I wanted to do. The Broncos haven't won the Super Bowl in a long time. It's just one more year. Like just all these, you know, now those things are trivial. I don't think, I don't want to make it sound trivial because there are things in my heart that I sometimes struggle with. Just, just little things that I struggle with that I'm waiting for. And I worry about that. You know, I've got, I've got a son. He's getting to marry an age. I'd like to see that dude get married off. See how that works out for him and her. Like, I want to see that. I mean that in a bad way. I'm just saying, I want to see that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, I'm expecting my first grandchild. Like, I want to meet this baby. I can't wait. And yet I don't want to be in this place where I'm hanging on so tight to here because of the things that I want to experience here that I'm not really ready for up there. I see this happen sometimes with older people that are sick, and they say their whole life, I can't wait to get to see Jesus. And then when it's time and they're sick and things are happening, they do everything they can to hang on to this life. Every means necessary. You see, there's this duplicity that's built within us in these areas. Now, we have to decide who we are. Again, I'm not telling us to hasten our death, but I'm telling us all of us will die. And we should be looking more forward to our death than we are to any of the things in life. So there's some weird things too, by the way. I'm afraid of heights. And so sometimes when I like had dreams about the rapture in my stomach, like, whoa, (laughs) slowly take me up, Jesus. I got to get used to this. Close your eyes, close your eyes. You know, but there's just these things that can kind of become distractions. We want to be heavenly minded. We don't want to be so connected to the things of this earth that we're not expecting or hoping for heaven. And I think that's a real concern for us. Now, Jesus has a couple of other parables he's going to tell them to really help them understand what the problem is that they're having with him. And he uses this two illustrations. One is of a torn old shirt, and the other is of an old wineskin. So the torn old shirt, he describes it like this. Imagine you have a torn old shirt, and then you go buy a brand new shirt. Would you cut a chunk out of the brand new shirt and cover the hole to patch the old shirt that's torn? That doesn't make any sense for a number of reasons. One reason is the old shirt has already shrunk. The new shirt hasn't shrunk yet. You put that on there, you sew that together, you wash it, that new fabric shrinks and tears away. Now you've got a hole in two shirts. It doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't you just wear the new shirt? (laughs) 
That's the picture. The other one is the old wineskins. Uh, they would use these kind of, um, I don't want to get too gross, but just, uh, we'll just call it leathery bags that they would carry their wine in. And the older they were, the more brittle that they would get. And you have this problem, if you put new wine in them, new wine is still kind of fermenting a little bit and it begins to expand. And it would burst those old wineskins. So you would put new wine in a new wineskin that's still flexible and can expand with it. Right? That was kind of the picture. Nobody would put new wine in an old wineskin because it'll explode. What he's trying to tell these Pharisees, the religious leaders, is there's something new that's happened. You're so used to the old way, to the old covenant, that you can't handle the new covenant. But the new covenant isn't about just patching some of the holes in the old. The new covenant isn't about refilling the old. The new covenant in Jesus Christ really is something new. But the problem that the Pharisees are having is is laid out there in 39. But I'm kind of used to the old covenant. What's wrong with the old covenant? Why do we got to do a new covenant? If it's new, it's not for you. (laughs) It's just kind of this built in, and I, and I don't want to mock it too much because I understand that personally. Like you get, you go through these things, but all of the old covenant was pointing to a new. It was preparing them that there was something new coming. Something new is going to happen in Jesus Christ. That's what all that was doing. It was all crying out. There's this new thing. All the prophets crying out a new covenant where the law of God is inscribed not on stone, but in your heart. And it's finally there And the Pharisees are like, well, this is not the way we've always done it before. And Jesus is like, no, because it's better. That's the covenant that we're attached to. You see, we have a Savior in Jesus Christ who forgives us all of our sins and fulfills all the Old Testament covenants or requirements for us. That's the gift we have in Jesus Christ. It's something new. It's something we celebrate weekly here as a church when we gather together. We celebrate, behold, the new is gone, or the old is gone, the new has come. The planned things of Jesus Christ. For those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ, we hear these things and we're like, that's the good stuff. That's why we come to church. That's why we pray. That's why we read our Bible. That's why we sing to him. But if you've never heard that stuff, maybe you're still in this place where you're one of those sinful people separated from God because of your own sins. What you need to do is believe and receive the forgiveness of those sins so that you can be in right relationship with the God who loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so thankful for these passages. Every week uh, you show us something new and amazing. Uh, Every week is exciting. Uh, for me personally, whether it is for anybody else. Uh, Lord, I would pray for myself and probably for others as well that I would know how to um, rightly respond to the miraculous. Uh, Father, I want to see your spirit moving in mighty and powerful ways. Uh, But Lord, don't let me desire it or any of us desire it for selfish purposes. Father, let me be more concerned about the advancement of your kingdom than my health. Let me, Lord, be more concerned about fulfilling your desires than my desires.
Oh, Father, help us all to have a healthy understanding of the difference between the temporary nature of this life and the eternal nature of heaven. That we would be in this world, but not of this world. That we would recognize that we're here on a recruiting trip. This isn't our home. But someday we get to be in the eternal place with the God who loved us. That we would look so forward to that, that at any moment when you're ready to take us, we would surrender to your will and we would go with great joy to be in your presence. Father, when we're reminded of the gospel, that we would celebrate the great things you've done for us. But Father, if there's anyone who has not received the gospel, who've not been forgiven of their sins here today or maybe listening online or who will hear it in years to come, that those folks would take this to heart. They would recognize their own sinful need for you. And they would surrender themselves to you and that today would be for them a day of salvation, a day when they could celebrate like Levi celebrated. Father, we praise these things in Jesus' name. Amen.